This week on the Backtable Podcast. We build financial models for them. It can be a pro forma saying, where is your money going to come from? But also what we do is a lot of our client organizations will be reducing the total cost of care. So we identify who the potential client is and we identify the actual amount of expected savings that they're going to get. And then the cool thing about that is that then you can back into from that savings amount how much the client should be pricing their product at. So let's say you are an ED reduction company, you're trying to reduce ED visits and you're reducing $100 worth of ED visits every month. Well, then you should not be pricing your product at $120 a month, right? Because who would spend $120 a month for $100 worth of savings? And in fact, you should be repricing it at somewhere between 4X and 10X. So that means for $100 a month would be $10 a month to $25 a month so that your client is getting all that extra savings. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Backtable.com. This is our next installment of the Backtable Innovation Show, where you'll hear stories from founders, physician entrepreneurs, and healthcare economists that are helping drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. I'm Eric Anker. I'm your host for this week. I'm an academic pediatric laryngologist in academic practice in New York and a tech enthusiast as part of several startups in the healthcare innovation and gaming space. I'm very excited to introduce my special guest, Adam Block. Hey, Eric. Nice to see you. Great to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm really excited to be here today. So, you know, the the uh, first question I always ask people is uh, obviously tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, who you are, and uh, so are all of your identities, which all of us all have different identities. Sure. Well, we'll start out with my professional identity. My professional identity is I am a health economist and uh, I work with a lot of physicians, um, but uh, I'll tell you about a, a couple of the roles that I currently play and my background. So my background is, is that I was pre-med like uh, I guess you were and like many of your listeners were. And uh, I was a neuroscience major in college. And uh, I decided that I took an econ minor and I decided that, you know what, the best way for me to potentially impact things, particularly because my grades in organic chemistry were not that good, was maybe to go into public policy. And uh, I worked as uh, a consultant at Blue Cross Blue Shield for a couple of years because I wanted to see how the sausage was made rather than uh, working as a, uh, for a hospital system or something like that. I wanted to see sort of the other side of things. And then I found this PhD program in health economics and uh, the rest is basically history. That's, that's so interesting. And uh, we also have talked about this offline, but uh, your brother's also a physician. Is there any other physicians in your family? So, yeah, we, we didn't come from a healthcare family. I actually came from a family, most of uh, teachers and stuff. Uh, and But my brother is a physician and my wife is a physician. She works at Northwell. She's in general internal medicine. Oh, that's so interesting. And, you know, did that shape your career at all? Having other, obviously, you're, you're older, right, than, than Brent? I'm older than everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yes, I'm older than my brother and I'm older than my uh, my wife. They actually knew each other in high school, which is another oh, story. Funny. But uh, <laughs> but yes, uh, no, I took this very, the, the health economics path was not rote for me. It was very, uh, and each step of my career has been a challenge to identify what the right next step is. Most people, after they get a PhD, eventually become professors. And that was not what I wanted to do. I wanted to work on Capitol Hill. So my first job after getting my PhD, uh, I was extraordinarily fortunate at the time that I graduated. 
The time that I graduated was uh, around 2008, and that was the time that Obama was running for president and was planning in the advanced stages of doing healthcare reform. So they were recruiting health economists at Union Station in D.C., as I like to say. In other words, there was a limited supply of people with my training and a huge demand for it. So I got a job directly working on Capitol Hill, and uh, it was really a unique experience. That's so interesting. And, you know, nothing else happened in the technology world in 2008 or in the economy. So, you know, that was a really good time for you, right? <laughs> it was a, there was a, a very big debate uh, that was happening at the very beginning of the Obama administration. And I'll tell you my personal opinion on it, which is that um, the big debate was Obama wanted to push forward and do health care reform, even though there was a financial collapse. And a lot of people on Wall Street were like, no, this is the moment to do financial reform. Even though I was a healthcare economist, and even though my entire career sort of revolves around the fact that I was involved in this once-in-a-lifetime change, politically, I think it was the right time to do financial reform because uh, Obama's first chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, and later mayor of Chicago said, let no crisis go wasted. He said, let no crisis go wasted. And that means that you have the public's attention now, and so it is a good time to do the reforms that you think need to be done because political attention is very limited. And so when you have it, you want to use it. Yeah, exactly. No, it, it was a really good time. And, you know, you always look for those moments and it's all about timing. Of In this entire industry, I've realized timing is so, so vital uh, to be able to make any change. And I think that was a yeah. really good time. Yes. I mean, you see that with COVID as well, right? Like all of a sudden nobody, I'm a public health professor in, in addition to having a consulting practice in, uh, in health economics. And uh, COVID was like, our moment and nobody had ever talked about public health. And then you, uh, we now talk about uh, armchair epidemiologists. Yeah. That's now a term. That's so funny. Yeah, we, we talk about it in the technology realm as well, where it was just an accelerator for change. Telehealth was so slow, teleconferencing, all these other technologies were slow, so slow. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hit and this rapid acceleration and adoption of technology happened and we're continued, continued to see some of those benefits. Yes. I mean, in part, it was slow because of me. And I don't mean me personally, but I mean as a former uh, employee of CMS and someone in sort of the healthcare reimbursement institution, the reason that it was slow was because nobody was paying for it. And then all of a sudden at the drop of the hat, right, the public health emergency passed and Medicare all of a sudden was paying for all of these types of visits that nobody was nobody had been paying for before. And the interesting thing about it is a whole bunch of those types of visits turned out now three plus years in retrospect to be relatively appropriate uses of care. A few of them were very good uses during emergency times. In other words, right, it's a public health emergency. You can't go see your doctor. So this is the second best thing to do. And it's actually way better than not seeing your doctor at all. But a lot of those, uh, we see visits continuing that are telemedicine and are actually being very successful and enabling people who weren't able to get care to actually get care because they were an hour away from their doctor, they had to pay for childcare. There's a variety of reasons. I mean, I could get my kid's earache seen in, well, because my brother, I can usually get it seen pretty, pretty promptly, or now you may get a phone call from me, but I could get my kid's earache seen at eight o'clock at night, get an antibiotic for them and send them off to school tomorrow in a way that wouldn't have been able, I wouldn't have been able to do even five years ago. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I was obviously working during that and the telehealth was uh, really that one minor change with CMS covering it. 
just made every single hospital system be like, we need telehealth. And for a lot of people, it was a access issue, right? We couldn't come into the hospital. For ENT, for me, myself, it was difficult because doing pediatric ENT over telehealth is relatively difficult to do an exam and all the things you need to do. But to do records review and go over studies and share decision-making, that was perfectly appropriate for telehealth. And now I'm interested to see what the quote-unquote post-pandemic looks like for telehealth. Uh, There's a bunch of startups in this area too, which we'll uh, hopefully talk about in a second. But it's just interesting how very small changes in the economics make rapid changes in adoption in technology and innovation. Yeah, I, that was the disruption. Disruption is sometimes is a technology that comes in, but sometimes disruption is an event. And in this case, it was an event that pushed all of us to do something that we were, and we weren't able, as able to do it even five years ago, I mean, or five years before the pandemic. So in 2015, I remember working at companies and like, while I did have FaceTime on my phone, you had to be in Wi-Fi and it was fickle. And if I were to do it in a business environment, there were only certain rooms you could do it in. And by 2020, basically everybody could do it everywhere. And it wouldn't have been as easy if had the pandemic occurred five years before. Oh, 100%. I mean, this timing was incredible for, you know, it's a silver lining, I I like to say. And, you know, it was an unfortunate event, but uh, the way that work has changed for everybody, you know, doing teleconferencing and uh, being remote. Like we don't even do grand rounds in person anymore. And and we're like, what was this like before? And even educational sessions are all remote. And so now it's a whole new era of us trying to figure out how to teach over over Zoom or, you know, over teleconferencing software. Yeah. I, I mean, my company is uh, completely remote, meaning like we, we sometimes meet together at conferences and we'll sometimes get a shared workspace uh, on, you know, on certain instances. But I have uh, right now, uh, we have one person in Madrid, we have one person in Austin, we have one person in Montreal, and then we have one person on Long Island who we like to get together uh, every so often to meet up. It's, it's so, so interesting. We'll, we'll maybe talk about the future of work here in a second. Take me back to back to 2008. So you started working you know, with, with CMS on Capitol Hill. What did that journey look like for you? What, where did you go after that? What, what was the next step for you? Sure. So on Capitol Hill, I worked for the Joint Committee on Taxation. I actually had two job offers. One was for the Congressional Budget Office, which is where I had always expected to work. They are the people that when you say that there is a $2 trillion bill out there, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act or whatever it is, they're the ones that count that. They're the ones that objectively measure that it's $2 trillion and not $1.5 or not $2.5. And that's what I always expected to do. The Joint Committee on Taxation is uh, like an 80-person offshoot of that that only deals with tax legislation. And I took that job actually not because I'm so interested in tax, but because it was a smaller shop and they offered me uh, more access to working directly with the Capitol Hill staffers. So I was actually helping draft sections of the Affordable Care Act legislation uh, for about two years on there, and it was a unique life experience. Oh, that's incredible. So, you know, what, what were sort of the life lessons you learned from that that sort of took you into your next phase? And what did that next phase look like for you? Sure. Uh, the life lesson is, is we talked about timing and timing is the big life lesson, which is that uh, Lyndon Johnson, I'm going to get all public health professory. <laughs> you know, you're getting into the, the depths of it. it when you get all, uh, when you start talking about Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Johnson passed Medicare and Lyndon Johnson passed Medicare in two months. Meanwhile, Obama wanted to pass it quickly, but left it in the hands of Congress. And uh, it took, uh, I don't know, 15 months or so to pass. And as a result, 
there were a whole bunch of complications in terms of passing, and he lost a lot of the bipartisanship that was potentially present at the beginning. And I can tell you personally that I watched some bipartisanship being present at the beginning. And so I learned uh, speed is of the essence and you lose your momentum when you don't do things quickly. So do things quickly. And sometimes the perfect is the enemy of the good. Yeah. Yeah. So as your as your career evolved from that, um, you know, obviously now you have your own consulting firm and, and you do stuff with that. Uh, so what happened leading up to that? Had you doing entrepreneurial entrepreneurial stuff before? Had oh, you gosh, been doing, no. I, yeah. Had you I been was doing, definitely not an entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, I was a the opposite of entrepreneur is bureaucrat. I was a bureaucrat and I still may be a bureaucrat at heart. So uh, let, let me take you through how I got from where I was. And I've had a couple of companies and entrepreneurial experiences, including my current one. So I'll, I'll talk you through all, all of those. But the first thing I did is after the Affordable Care Act passed, there was literally nothing left to do on Capitol Hill related to healthcare. Nobody, everybody had a healthcare hangover. Nobody wanted to do it. So me and all of my closest friends that have worked on the bill, now law, moved over to CMS to actually write regulations for the law. So then I moved over in 2010 and wrote regulations on the Affordable Care Act for three years. One of my prouder moments was I was involved in the essential health benefits, which was defining the benefits that had to be covered. It got written up in the New York Times, it was on the front page, and that was the regulation that I wrote. So that was a, a, a unique life experience, I would call it. And then uh, life happened. My wife uh, finished her fellowship at Hopkins and we had twins all at the same, basically at the same time. And we decided it was time to move home to New York. So I was looking for a job and I thought it would be relatively easy, but moving to a different market is always complicated. And so I uh, moved to New York in 2013 and uh, worked for a place called Fidelis which is a Medicaid managed care organization, about a million and a half members. It's now owned by Centene, but when I was there, it was officially called the New York State Catholic Health Plan, the director of medical economics there. And it was really a great place for me to really understand health insurance, because while I understood from like a researcher's perspective and from a regulator's perspective, I didn't know it from an operator's perspective. And it's a perfect place to work because United is an enormous institution. And when you're in United, it's like feeling an elephant. And if you're on the side of the elephant, you feel the side of the elephant. If you feel the tail of the elephant, you feel, right, you feel the, the fuzzy tail. At a place like Fidelis with a million and a half members, I really could see it from soup to nuts, right? Like where the money came from, how it came from the state, how we were regulated, um, how all the different product lines like managed long-term care and Medicare all worked. So it was a great experience. I moved over to Montefiore when the district program started, which was delivery system reform payment program, where they tried to basically make Medicaid through the Medicaid program, make it more value-based care. And Montefiore was a, a leader in that. And so they were recruiting people. I worked from there as a director in strategic planning between 2015 and 2017. In all of those experiences, I was working in finance and I had lots of entrepreneurs like yourself and others coming to our side of the organization saying, partner with us, give us funding, for, be our first client. And what I found as a common theme, and this is what drove me to start Charm Economics, was that many of these companies had great clinical models and extraordinarily few of them, almost zero, had a clear business model 
because the CFO asks the same question every time, which is two questions. How are you going to save me money? How are you going to increase my revenue? And clinicians, user interface experts, engineers would have very clear pathways by which they could show you the clinical operations, but they did, were not able to answer that question. And as a result, they were not particularly successful in getting their products to be licensed by the institutions that I worked for. Yeah. And that's that's not surprising. Uh, we're going to jump headlong into Charm Economics, but I want to I want to take a quick step back because you have such such a wealth of information and experience that you bring to this that a lot of our healthcare innovators don't really get a, a purview into. They don't get to see. A lot of people reach out to me and to others in this space that are physician entrepreneurs. They are interested in uh, doing something outside of healthcare. I wanted to ask you from an economic standpoint, are you think that there's what economic factors and what other factors do you think are pushing doctors or bringing them into this entrepreneurial world? So healthcare is super complicated, both from a payment perspective, but also clinically, because getting people better is super complicated. And then operationally, which basically means taking the best science that exists and giving it out to patients on a day-to-day -day basis, hour after hour, week after week in an efficient way, meaning not spending three hours with one patient when you could basically diagnose and treat them in 15 minutes, right? That is all, there's lots of opportunities. And physicians who live this day to day, they see these opportunities. And so that's where the kernel of ideas come from. They say, I can do it better. And people do that all the time, right? We, when you're at a restaurant and you see that the food is coming out too slow, people think about, oh, if they just put this over here, then they could do it. So, so there are real life opportunities to basically improve patient care and there are ways to uh, monetize that. So I think that physicians are right in thinking that there are operational opportunities to do this. However, the pathway to taking a good idea, A, seeing a problem, B, seeing a solution, and then C, turning it into a solution for everyone that can be monetized. Those are three very, two different, uh, very different steps. And it may be, they may have two of them, but if you have to have all three to become a successful business. Oh, 100%. And I've seen all of these conversations. Is it a push or is it a pull for physicians into the entrepreneurial world? And I think, you know, we see on our side, a lot of the pushing, you know, a lot of the burnout, uh, which we're going to talk about in a second and the economics of healthcare and the frustrations of seeing things that you can't fix. Uh, but it's interesting because you talk a lot about the pull, you know, the opportunity to use your skills, the opportunity to make change, the opportunity to use your expertise. Do you think it's more of a pull than a push? I think for lots of people, there is a pull. And what I tell, I have uh, a few part-timers who have graduated. I, I worked with them while they were fourth-year medical students. And then they go off into residency. And of course, they're not working with me anymore. But I tell them because they all have the entrepreneurial bug, which is why they're working with me in the first place. And I tell them, don't go at it saying, I'm going to start a company. Go and do your clinical rotations and do your clinical work. And when you see a problem, try to come up with what the solution is because you're uniquely positioned to see problems and then think about what a reasonable operational solution is. Whereas I can never, ever do that. Like not ever because I'm not seeing patients. So I'm not seeing the problems, but they, so you have to really start off with it growing organically. 
I mean, the problem, the, the reason that I think Charm Economics has been successful is, is that I was geared to seeing one problem. The problem was that there were a whole bunch of entrepreneurs with good clinical models that didn't have a business model. So my business model was to create economic models for these folks who didn't have the skill set to basically do them or know even what steps they, even the fact that they needed to do it, they didn't even know that. So you have to really take advantage of the fact that you're in the mix in this clinical space that none of the VCs are and none of the professional services are and that the patients are in once in their life or you know once a year or whatever it is, not frequently, and you're in it every day. It's so true. You know, I, I get people from medical school and residency who reach out to me who are interested in getting involved in something outside of clinical care. And the advice they always ask me is like, do I need to do residency? Do I need to be a clinician? And I grapple, grappled with this myself. And I went to all my mentors and I said, you know, I'm sort of splitting the line between my tech job and my healthcare job in academia. You know, am, am I going to be a forced one way or the other? And a lot of people gave me the advice like, Number one, you are a, a clinician with a wealth of information in the front lines. And getting that expertise and that perspective is invaluable and is something that nobody else has that's in this space. And do that as long as you can so you can keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening in healthcare and you're not removed from it and talking in a third person way. So I, I, I took that to heart and that's why I continue to sort of split the gap between the two. It gets harder and harder every day. But uh, it is an interesting perspective that we get, not just having the clinical expertise, but actually being on the front lines every day. I tend to agree with that. I, I believe that you need to be seeing it. And what I found, because I thought that when, and I can tell you this from my experience on Capitol Hill and, and with CMS, which was the day I walked out, I was like, I know more about these regulations than anybody. And I did. <laughs> but then six months later, I was like, oh, I read an article. I was like, this person knows more than me. And then a year later, it was like many more people. So it diminishes your your knowledge and expertise in the space when you leave the front lines, diminishes rapidly, and it doesn't come back until you go back to it. So that expertise, which you may have now, and you may have it the day after you leave, and it's incredibly valuable. You are not going to have it in a year, and you're definitely not going to have it in five. Yeah, it's interesting because it's this, again, this sort of position that you're in where you have to keep one foot on the front line, but then to run a company or do something in this space, you really have to dedicate a lot of time and energy to it. And so it's hard for you to uh, straddle both. And eventually you have to pull one foot out. And it's usually the clinical uh, foot that you're pulling out. But again, you're right. All of a sudden, this quick degradation of understanding what's going on. So you need that contact. You need that person who is on the front lines and be willing to listen and talk to them and understand what their problems are. Yes, I agree. I think you have to keep one foot in the door, but it is a challenge. I mean, I, I face that challenge frequently because I have my consulting practice and I'm a full-time public health professor doing research and teaching. And it's, you know, it is, it's a challenge. So I want to, with your wealth of knowledge going, having been with CMS, being on Capitol Hill, being a part of the Affordable Care Act, I'd be remiss to not ask about healthcare economics and how, how this works because I've seen a lot of disgruntlement and, and burnout amongst physicians about the fact that people think that doctors are sort of fueling some of the healthcare economics and some of the healthcare spending. And, you know, then you get reports that, you know, J&J is making $94 billion, Pfizer's making $100 billion. 
CEOs of these companies are making 20 to $30 million. The insurance industry is $1.3 trillion. Uh, UHC is posting uh, almost uh, projecting $360 billion revenue for 2023. How, how do you reconcile this for physicians who are in the day-to-day and getting blamed necessarily for the healthcare spending? Uh, there's a lot of people making a lot of money in healthcare. This yeah, is true. Like, all, like yeah. a, a lot, like a lot of people. And you know, the best way to frame it is is that healthcare is one fifth of the U.S. economy. It is twenty percent. So if you look in your wallet, one out of every five dollars is due to healthcare. Now, if you or I look in our wallets, actually, all the five dollars are there because of healthcare, because that is our that is our industry. And what I will tell what I tell most of my public health students is that. The biggest problem in our industry is that it is growing really fast and nobody knows how to stop it. But the best career decision that you made was that you entered an industry that the biggest problem <laughs> is it is growing so fast and nobody knows how to stop it. Exactly. <laughs> so from a personal economic perspective, like the biggest problem, right? Like I don't worry at all that I'm going to wake up one day and like, nobody's going to be doing healthcare anymore and the industry is going to go away. Like I, it's just not, whereas if you're in some other industries like that can, that can happen. So there are, but there, I would say that like, as a result, there are lots of ways that many people are making huge amounts of money in their huge salaries. And it's because there is so much money being spent that if you can shave off a percent here or a percent there, a percent can be a huge amount of money. So there, there are these opportunities. It also means that there's opportunities for savings and to add value and to improve quality of care. No, absolutely. I, you know, the, the push that I hear from health people involved in healthcare is just the idea that they, they're feeling more and more like a cog in the wheel. But, you know, you bring up a good point, whereas they are part of an industry that is never going to go away. You know, they have this tremendous... Uh, safety net for having a job. You know, we're never not going to have a job. So we, the perspective needs to change a little bit, maybe. Yes, but you know, I am an economist, and so there we have a term for uh, all products, including healthcare, and they're all widgets. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> as an economist, like we we call everybody widgets. Everything that you produce, every level of production that you create, and one of your surgeries, right, is a uh, you know, while it's a procedure for you and it's a procedure for your patient. At a high level, you know, ec- economists call them all widgets, and that's how the economy works. So, so yeah, um, there there are two perspectives for all of this. And what one of the objectives is to produce those units of care, both as high quality as we can, and also efficiently, which means that they don't cost. Because downstream, what you want to do is you want to make sure that people are getting value for their dollars. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's been very crystallized, especially amongst academics. So academic physicians, as you know, tend to, you know, make slightly slightly less money if you look at the whole economics of it. And there was recent news that came out that- the, I know. Yeah, I'm exactly. One. So there's recent news that, um, you know, publishers um, and, you know, what came, came of what happened with Elsevier, you know, Elsevier uh, lost a bunch of uh, editors when they refused to lower their- publication cost that they pass on to publishers. And, you know, they published a uh, $3 billion revenue. And, you know, they, you know, looking at the, looking just at the numbers, you know, they have 2,800 journals, 29,000 editors, and 1.3 million reviewers. And, you know, all of the academic physicians, most of them don't get paid to do this. 
And on top of that, the content that they're publishing, uh, they have to pay to get it published. In fact, in 2021, they launched 105 new journals and 95% of them were open access, which basically means that the people who are submitting the articles are paying for it. So again, there is this sense of burnout in a sense of we are providing content, we're reviewing this, it's all for free, and this company's making $3 billion. So, you know, again, it's just that it's that drive that a lot of physicians, I feel like the push that people have had, especially in academia, and it's been harder and harder every day for us to get reviewers for articles. Uh, you know, I, I review for a bunch of articles myself, and it's getting harder and harder to find reviewers just because of that, the economics of it. Yeah, it is. It is hard. Uh, the implicit bargain has been, and and I say implicit bargain because it's not contractual anywhere, and maybe that's going to change, but that when you are in academic medicine and you are publishing journals, meaning you are getting your own articles published, that you serve as an editor or as a reviewer. I've done it myself. I spend a lot of time doing it. I don't get any money for it. I get, it goes on a line on my CV and I potentially retain my job or potentially get promoted on journals that I've done reviews for. But in reality, it is not monetizable in the same way that certainly if you were to work as a, you know, take a, a, a day as a part-timer and you'd, you'd walk in, you'd do your services and you'd walk out and get paid. This is just not that way. And it's becoming harder and harder. Certainly, as the gap between academic medicine careers uh, in terms of salary and non-academic medicine careers, as that, as that grows and people are finding they're spending time doing these reviews that are basically unpaid, it is a problem that is going to get worse, I think, before it gets better. I, I totally agree. And there's been a lot of, lot of activity on social media with regards to this. And a lot of people that I've talked to who are starting to realize that and just understanding sort of what that what that cost is, that opportunity cost is spending time with family or reviewing something for free for a journal that's for profit, it's it's hard. Um, and so a lot of people, again, are trying to look at ways that they could use their expertise and go into the innovation entrepreneurial world, which we're going to talk about right now. So, All you know, right. so I think one of the things that, you know, Charm does is really meet with some of these early startups and try to think through business plans and what you're talking about, the revenue and the savings that comes from it. We went through sort of this period of time where technology, if you said the term virtual reality, people threw money at you, you know, and, and that that is getting tighter. And so can you talk a little bit about from your experience, what you've seen people coming into this space, trying to get funding and sort of the general trends that you're seeing? So one of the things that we focus on with our clients, and then I'll talk about some of the general trends that I've seen in the last like two to three years. Is one thing that we focus on with our clients is we call them value streams, which is like when we do a kickoff meeting with a client, what we'll say is, what is it exactly very clearly that you do, not just for a patient, but that you are planning, who are you planning on selling to and why are they buying it from you? And a lot of times that those arguments won't be exactly clear. And so we try to crystallize those. And usually there's one of a handful of potential clients. And those potential clients are, number one, is you're selling directly to a hospital system. Number two is you are focused on prevention and therefore the hospital system doesn't even have you, the, the patient that you have in mind. They don't even have them as a patient. So you need to sell to the health plan. Splitting the baby on that a little bit can be an accountable care organization. Or if it's not for focused on hospital related stuff, it might be a multi-specialty group practice. 
Maybe it's a, you know, a revenue uh, software or something like that. So there's a couple of different potential clients out there. There's not an infinite number. And then there's also direct to consumer, right? You can sell it directly to consumer. All of those have different pros and cons. And what, what I've seen over the last few years, I would say like two years ago, and this was in the height of the pandemic, was that there was a lot of money going towards telehealth and uh, because there, wasn't, there weren't great solutions out there. And there were a lot of people, startups, that were being built and starting up. Um, what we've seen in the last two years is that, uh, which is a natural evolution of the industry, and not of this industry, but literally of almost any industry, which is that there's a lot of startups, a lot of people with big brains and big ideas looking to create something, and then those things consolidate over time. In other words, a couple of the weaker players may you know, die out because they didn't have a good value proposition or they were they had a good value proposition, but they weren't able to execute on it. Or they were able to execute on it, but they weren't able to get funding to last them as long as they needed it to last. There's a whole variety of reasons why these things happen. Others may be successful in that space and get acquired, and others may still acquire others and consolidate. And instead of offering one-point solution, it may be more value-added for them to have 10-point solutions all in one package and uh, and sell their services that way. So that's really where we are. But I have to say, I thought that the number of startups being created would have slowed down. And I haven't really seen it. I mean, the conferences that I go to somehow are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's more and more innovation and clever, innovative ideas at, at each of them. So it's really uh, quite what one of the joys of my job is just walking around and talking to people about all the cool ideas that they've come up with that I would never have seen otherwise at an early stage. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I have a bunch of friends that are sort of in the startup world and they're all talking about how the funding w isn't what it was. And so it's interesting from your perspective because you don't necessarily see that, right? You're not seeing that these companies are getting as difficult of time of raising money, but the ones that have a better value proposition, better execution, or getting the funds? I'm he I'm definitely hearing it. And what I'll say is, and this is only my perspective, is is that like we're past the peak, but it doesn't mean that there's no opportunities around. We are not in like, uh, you know, we're not in a valley. So there are still lots of opportunities around. It is just not as available as it once was. And I think that VCs are looking for a clear, narrow pathway to value, which basically means you've got to show how you're going to come up with annual recurring revenue, and you've got to show both that and how you're going to do that in a profitable way. Because it's one thing if you can bring in annual recurring revenue. It's another thing if you're going to bring in $10 million of annual recurring revenue, but that your cost basis for doing that is $30 million. So true. So that that's the key takeaway is they have to have a clear, narrow pathway to value. And I think that's the biggest takeaway for us. You know, we see a lot of technology for technology's sake as I've gone through this world. And you bring up a lot of valid points talking about sort of the validation, the research, the ROI. A lot of companies who are just entering into this space, those are tough, tough levels to meet. You know, pure validation, good research, proof of recurrent return on investment. What can early startups do to meet those criteria such that they'd be able to look more attractive to VCs and other funding mechanisms? 
Yeah. So that's the value proposition that we have for our clients is that's that's exactly the service that we provide at Charm Economics is we build financial models that will identify. So rather than thinking about it from a clinical perspective, we're thinking about it. Who are you going to sell this to? How much do you think it will? Why would they buy it? And the reason that they would potentially buy it, not from a clinical perspective, but from a business perspective, is it's going to reduce their overall cost of care or something related to cost that they experience, or and maybe it's something related to improving turnover, and it's going to reduce their turnover costs in their uh, you know, nurse staffing organization. So there can be lots of reasons why somebody would buy a new technology, or it's going to increase their revenue. And so you have to really understand how what you're going to do is going to do one of those two things and then sell it, make sure that you're selling, planning on selling it to the organization that is going to value that that service, that increase in revenue or that reduction in price. I've had lots of folks, they just implicitly think that they're going to sell it to hospital systems, but they may be creating a chronic care population-based service and the hospital doesn't have any reason to invest in that, but the health plan does. So they got to make sure that they're selling it to the right organization. And then they also need to know how they're going to get into it. In other words, they need what the business school folks would call as a channel. They need a way to get from where they are into the organization that they're trying to sell to. It is so interesting. That is such a good point. Just matching and understanding what their motivations and drivers are to invest in something like this. And realize you may not be talking to the right person as part of the right stakeholder in that. Yeah. Identifying the right stakeholder in the value stream of healthcare is really hard and you use different strategies to get into different ones. So if you're, if you're selling to a hospital system, there's going to be a lot of doctors in the room when you're selling. Like, let's say you get the big meeting. There's going to be a lot of doctors in the room. The CFO will probably be the only one that is not a physician. In a hospital, uh, not a hospital, a insurance company, it's almost the opposite, where it's going to be a bunch of accountants and people with that sort of training. And there's going to be one physician in the room and it's going to be the chief medical officer. So it's a different dynamic by which you're selling to those two different types of organizations. It's so interesting. And you and I had this conversation before uh, when we met, was that I was doing quality improvement at my hospital um, somewhere somewhere not, not here. And I had gotten the attention of the quality improvement team and the chief uh, quality officer and the chief medical officer. And they said, okay, you know, you've done this really good grassroots program. Can you present it to our CFO and uh, to our board, essentially? And I walked in with this presentation. I talked about sort of the patient care and how we were trying to improve patient care. And he stopped me midway and said, yeah, yeah, yeah. How much is this going to cost us? How much is this going to make us? And how much is this going to save us? And luckily I had been ready for that conversation and totally went down that road and said, okay, well, you're going to realize this cough savings over this period of time. And sure enough, it got approved. approved. So now it's a funded program. But again, like just understanding the audience that you're talking to and speaking their same language and walking in revenue and savings, how is this going to work for me when you have those folks in the room? Yeah. And the thing that I'll tell you is that you don't get a lot of those. So you got that one meeting and it sounds like you blew it out of the water, which is great because you were prepared for it. Those questions that you just said were the exact questions that we, you know, we try to help our clients answer because those are the questions that every CFO is thinking about. It's not like they're complicated questions. Like, of course, that's what the CFO is thinking about, but you got to really directly ask them and have clear cut answers because you got one shot at this. You're getting in with the CFO and the chief medical officer. They're giving you 30 minutes of their time 
and you got to make sure that you get it right. And when you do, it only takes a couple of the right slides. Then all of a sudden you're well on your way. And if you don't, that was your chance. And so you have to make sure that when you have those 30 minutes, you're using them in an impactful way. It's like the Shark Tank presentation. You get that and that's it. You know, if you, you don't, get that <laughs> and that's it. And if you don't answer all the questions that they didn't even ask you, you have to know the questions that they have in their head because they're not going to ask them to you. And if you if they're engaged, you'll hopefully know. You can hopefully get the body language of them nodding along. And then what I find is that some of the CFOs, they check out, meaning like they don't physically check out, but they'll start checking their uh, their email because they have been satisfied, not because they're not engaged, but you have said everything that you need to say to convince them that they want to do it. So now they can go move on because they have really busy days. And the, uh, the other thing that I learned about executives is that they're so smart, but their days, they're smart in a slightly different way, which is that like I spent a lot of my time as an analyst and I am like a mile deep and an inch wide. I'm working on one project and taking it to the very bottom. And executives work on 50, 100 or more different projects and they get 30 minutes, super hyper scheduled and they do those 30 minute meetings, 16 of them a day, and they have to learn to understand it. So as a result, even though they're brilliant, you need to be able to keep things very simple for them because they're dealing with all of these different projects simultaneously. Yeah, you, you need the TLDR, the elevator pitch down down pat. So tell me more about Charm Economics. So, you know, uh, the evolution of this, you know, some of the clients or stories from clients and what you've seen as physician entrepreneurs and healthcare entrepreneurs come to you as a company and sort of what your role is with them. Sure. So what Charm Economics primarily does is we work on business cases for clinical care companies, digital health, telemedicine, anything in that medical devices, anything in that space. And what we try to help our clients with is we build financial models for them. It can be a pro forma saying, where is your money going to come from? But also what we do is a lot of our client organizations will be reducing the total cost of care. So we identify who the potential client is and we identify the actual amount of expected savings that they're going to get. And then the cool thing about that is that then you can back into from that savings amount, how much the client should be pricing their product at. So let's say you are an ED reduction company, you're trying to reduce ED visits and you're reducing $100 worth of ED visits every month. Well, then you should be pricing, you should not be pricing your product at $120 a month, right? Because who would spend $120 a month for $100 worth of savings? And in fact, I will tell you this from my personal experience that you should not be even pricing it at $50 a month. You should be repricing it at somewhere between 4X and 10X. So that means for $100 a month would be $10 a month to $25 a month so that your client is getting all that extra savings. That 4X to 10X, you feel that that's the sweet spot? I am a firm believer that that is the sweet spot. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So first, I've seen it in one academic report that there, that uh, organizations are not supposed to spend more than, I think it was 4X. And I heard that from my, one of my former uh, CFOs in finance. And then from the flip side, as an entrepreneur, you don't want to be giving away all of your value. So let's just take the extreme example of this. Let's say you were selling it for, for 10 cents and they're getting $100 worth of value. So they're getting $99 and 90 cents worth of value for a thing that you're selling for 10 cents. You're underselling your own, uh, your own value. 
you're leaving money on the table, basically. You could have charged a lot more and your client would still be extraordinarily happy. So that's what I always think is the right sweet spot. But actually calculating what the savings are to do the pricing, that's where we come in and that's what we help with. Without pulling back the curtain, do you have some stories from physician entrepreneurs or other entrepreneurs in this space that is a common theme? You see like physician entrepreneurs come to me with this idea and they don't realize this. Is it, is it that? Is it the understanding the savings and pricing models or are there other things? You have to understand it's the first thing that we talked about, which is think about who you're selling it to. In other words, make sure that if you are selling a population health tool that you're not trying to sell it to an organization that doesn't really care about population health. It is channels. In other words, you've got to make sure that you're getting in with the right people at the organization and that you're not wasting your time with people who can't actually bring you in. You're going to get asked questions about why don't you prove your your organization's savings to us. That's really hard to do when you don't have an anchor client. You don't have a client that... So you have to... Your first client will have to take a leap of faith with you, alongside you, that they believe that the theoretical model that you have created... This doesn't mean that you don't have a minimum viable product. You do have a minimum viable product. It just hasn't been used in any organization yet. And so they have to take a leap of faith with you. That is, to me, the first step between going from a like an idea with like maybe even an operational product and, you know, to a real company that may have sustainable revenue in the long run. That's such an important set of advice uh, is just, you know, getting the right people to talk to, thinking about who you're actually selling to and make sure that they care about what you're selling and the value proposition you're placing and, you know, being able to understand the proof of your organization and your your tool within that organization and how it would how how it would yes. perform. Let me give one more, if we have a moment, I'll give one more piece of advice from my old role as like a director level within a organization that would be potentially buying. And both from the health plan and a hospital perspective, which is that the CFO is going to be too busy to talk to you on a regular basis. They are not your main advocate, neither is, neither is the chief medical officer. But what happens is, is, and this is purely operational of like life and like life gets in the way, which is that like they're going to cancel one meeting on you. And so you need someone that is at a lower level, manager, director, assistant vice president, that loves your product and that will make sure that your product gets to the next level, that gets rescheduled. Because once they uh, cancel that first meeting, it may not get rescheduled. It may not get rescheduled for months. So you need an advocate on the inside that really believes in your product and that you can just sort of reach out and be like, look, it's been six weeks. Can we get back on the... Because the CFO is not going to get back onto you uh, on your your calendar like that, but someone that's a director or a manager, uh, more of a peer, they they will. That's so interesting and important because even at Level X, you know, our uh, medical video game company I work with, we've had that time and time again where we found a champion who is not at that you know decision making level, but just below it, and they advocated for us, went to bat for us, and we had so many opportunities that came from clients who had that person who was advocating for us in the house. Yes, that's the term. Find a champion. Yeah. So, And even in anything that I do in the quality improvement space, I've realized that at every step of the way, you need champions within the different 
stakeholder organizations. So whether it be for me, when I was doing tracheostomy QI, it was the ICU. I had to find a champion in the ICU that was willing to do this, a champion in the pulmonary department. You know, those champions are so important to believe and buy into your vision, I think is a uniformity across anything that you're trying to change. I'm a firm believer in that. I, I think you, you said it far better than I did, Eric, uh, that, that you need to fight a champion when you're trying to change something and they are at lower than that decision maker level, but they will make sure that you get seen by the right person. They will make sure that afterwards there's a, the follow-up that needs to happen will happen because just because you get a verbal yes does not mean that the contract, the right, the statement of work happens or the contract that you need to take place actually happens. So you need somebody internal that you're selling to that actually, and they have to really believe in it because they're only, because we're all in this for the same reason, which is improvement of clinical care. They're in it for improvement of clinical care and they like your idea, but you need to find the person that really, that really loves your idea and really believes in it. Oh, absolutely. So I have one last provocative question that probably could take in a whole hour. How do you think artificial intelligence, generative AI is going to change the economics of innovation, entrepreneurship, and healthcare? That's really interesting. Uh, that is a tough one. Uh, I don't think robots are taking over the world. So I'm not, I'm not personally concerned about that. And I do, I have used ChatGPT quite a bit. And some of the concerns that I have with it are that I have seen it make up information. So I don't think we have to worry about that right now. However, there are some core structural features of it that I think are really valuable. And I have used it for, so I had to write a, like a courteous rejection letter on something. I asked ChatGPT to write that. Nobody else could write that, right? Uh, so I could do it internally and write a worse one, or I could have ChatGPT do it for you. So I think that there are going to be people out there whose time is made much more efficient by leveraging this tool to do a bunch of tasks that are somewhat rote and not that nuanced, but uh, that are still require definitely, definitely a human element. So I think, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think, think about it in terms of mathematics and calculators. It allowed us to spend more, calculators have allowed us to spend more time thinking about the harder and deeper problems rather than just, I mean, there used to be, and this was not that long ago, this was like 50, 60 years ago, just people cranking out, cranking out calculations, cranking out long division. That just doesn't need to exist anymore. And it allows more brains to, to deal with bigger problems. So I'm not as worried about it as some people are. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people have been talking about it and, you know, you, Doximity integrated the chat GPT API to send uh, letters of medical necessity to the insurance companies and doing uh, you know, uh, trying to send, um, uh, whatchamacallit's the, uh, like an appeal appeal. Thank you. Like a medical yeah. necessity appeal. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they're doing appeals back to the insurance company and they'll auto generate the information and actually we'll fax it to the insurance company through the wow. Doximity portal. Yeah. It's, it's crazy, but then there's this arms race that's going to happen where the insurance company then is going to have something to review those letters and automatically reject them based on certain criteria, right? And then it's going to be like an AI arms race. There's a lot of really funny yeah. memes that go back and forth about AI talking to AI and humans having no input. Well, the, the the beautiful irony of what you just said is talking about AI three times and then saying, and then it automatically faxes the letter. <laughs> trust me, trust me. That is, that is so interesting and funny because I literally in my current healthcare job, they still do faxes, which I, they literally will print it out fill it out, scan it, and then somebody else uploads it into the computer. It's crazy. 
we're gonna we're gonna finish off with a couple of rapid fire questions. What yeah? Uh, what is the uh, best way that you keep up to date on everything that's happening in healthcare and economics and innovation right now? I subscribe subscribe to a couple of newsletters. Healthcare Dive is one of them. Uh, Healthcare Payer Intelligence, Becker's. Uh, there's a couple of newsletters that I get, and they come to my email box a couple of times a week. Plus, I subscribe to Modern Healthcare, which is a trade journal. What is a book that you recommend? The one that is in front of me, actually, right now, supporting my microphone, which is called You Bet Your Life. And what I like about it is it is about uh, how medical innovation came to be certain medical innovations, including chemotherapy for uh, treatment of childhood leukemia. And a podcast that you listen to. Physician's Guide to Doctoring. That was a gimmick. <laughs> That's not fair. Yeah. So, so Brad, Brad did give me some questions to ask you that I peppered in. Oh, you didn't no. Really, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, my brother too. So my brother's was on Brad's podcast as well. So I asked him to give me some questions and I peppered those in too. So you didn't even realize it. But uh, how can people get in touch with you, follow you on social media, how they get in touch with Charm Economics? So on Twitter, I actually don't post very much uh, much more because uh, I do a lot of expert witnessing, uh, but I'm at Adam B. Healthy Con. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's a great way. Uh, I always like seeing messages. And if you go to charmeconomics.com, you can read all about us and what we do in our sample materials. And we try to post on LinkedIn like once a week, including whenever uh, I'm looking forward to uh, sharing this with uh, all of our followers. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adam Block from Charm Economics. I'm Eric Anwerker, guest host for this episode of Backtable Innovations. Thank you, Adam, so much for hanging out with us. Thank you so much, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, Diana Velasquez-Pimentel, and Eric Gamwerker. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.